prophet Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year that I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with me from, from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I pray, O Lord, Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Bless it to our hearts. Bless it to our minds. Bless it to the totality of our lives. May we hear from you. May you give us ears to hear. May we see what you have for us. May you give us eyes to see. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You'll notice the title of my sermon is Renewal is Possible. Renewal is possible. In fact, renewal has happened before. 
not just with the return of Judah from Babylonian captivity. That's what we've, the context, the biblical context of the image that I've tried to keep before us these last couple of weeks and keep before us yet again this morning. The renewal of Israel as Judah and the southern tribes were preserved and brought back from Babylonian captivity under the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia. Go back and rebuild the Lord's house. But not just has it happened in the ancient biblical context, but it's happened before even in the preservation and restoration of Western civilization. If you reflect back on your Western Civ classes from high school and perhaps in college, you'll remember that as the Germanic tribes, the barbarians as the West called them, as they invaded, as they took over so much of the land of Europe and the Roman Empire, the empire began to crumble. It began to become unsteady and eventually collapsed under the pressure of the Germanic tribes. But the West was saved by Christianity. We think of the medieval church, in fact, we think of even that term, medieval. We think, oh, those are the dark ages. That's when nothing was happening. That's when things were bad and the church was bad and the church had too much power. But it was the church and it was... It was the monasteries of the Christian movement under the pressure of the Germanic tribes, under the pressure of the barbarian invasion, even while Rome was collapsing, even while Western civilization was on the brink of disaster and oblivion. It was Christianity that saved the West. The church. Sometimes when I look at the news and when I hear all of the pundits talk about how bad the church is and how bad God is and how, you know, how great is God really, I scratch my head in puzzlement and think, do you not know your history? In fact, a thank you is in order. Yes, the church has had its sins and yes, the church has done Horrible things. But it was the church that saved the West. It was the church that saved Western culture. It was the the church that saved all of Western civilization as civilized life as we knew it in the West was collapsing and falling apart. It was the church that preserved education. It was the church that preserved art. It was the church that preserved music. It was the church that preserved history. It was the church that preserved language. And it was the church that preserved philosophy. The West was saved by Christianity. 
We know that renewal is possible because God promises renewal to those who return to Him in His Word. We know it is possible because it happened in ancient Israel. Even though Israel was taken into captivity and later the tribes of Judah were taken into captivity in Babylon. Of all of the people groups taken into captivity in the ancient world, only Israel maintained its identity. Only Judah was brought out of captivity. Only one nation survived it. Renewal is possible. It has happened before. But renewal will cost us our idols. It'll cost us those things that we treasure above all else. It'll cost us those things that we erect in our lives as being of the utmost importance. Everything else paling in comparison. You can probably go over in your mind some of the idols that perhaps I'm thinking of and perhaps you've thought of before. The idol of the modern Western church. The chief idol. The big kahuna in the Western church of today is the desire to be relevant. If we could have nothing else, we would sell our birthright, it seems, in the Western church just to be relevant. What do we even mean by relevance? We hear about it all the time. I, I even read articles periodically from a, a website that, produced, that is a magazine called Relevant. What do we mean by relevance? Well, in the modern Western church, and I, I feel like I need to give the aside uh, explanation again, when I critique the West and when I critique America, when I critique the church, when I critique evangelicalism, I do that as part of the family. I, I, I don't think of myself as something other than Western American evangelical Christian. But family can critique one another, you know? It's one of the good and wholesome things about family. We can sharpen each other up. When I say that the idol of the modern Western church is the desire to be relevant, what I mean is simply this. We want to be culturally palatable, acceptable, respectable, and hip. We want the world to like us. And we can all day long come up with the justifications of, well, we don't want to burn bridges and you know, we don't want to put a bad taste in the culture's mouth. We, want to, we don't want to lose our audience. But I remember being in college and Chris Lorsdorfer said, you know, there's that careful balance between being so 
so acquiescing in your message that you keep your audience, but you no longer have anything to share with them. We don't want to lose our audience. We don't want to lose the ability to speak into the life of our culture. But we must maintain something, particularly Christian, to speak into that life of the culture. Being relevant is not in and of itself a bad thing. For crying out loud, the gospel is relevant. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, I guess, a couple of maybe three years ago, Jeremy Brewer, who's out of town today, um, sent me a text and he asked me a question. He was writing a paper for a class he was taking at Ohio Christian University, where I'm now teaching. And he asked about the relationship of the church with relevance. And I replied what I admitted was kind of a, a snarky response. But I said, the church is relevant for the sheer fact that it offers the gospel. The good news of redemption to a broken world. It is our job not to strive to be relevant. If we are faithful to the gospel, we already are relevant. The message we have is relevant. It would be like trying to argue for the relevance of a doctor when you have cancer. It would be like trying to, 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 to argue and defend the relevance of a gym when you're out of shape. We have the good news for a broken world. We have the gospel of the kingdom of God when all other kingdoms around us are falling and crumbling and failing. The church's priority or focus should never be upon making what we have to offer the world relevant, but on being faithful to the gospel, being faithful to Jesus, which of its very nature is necessarily relevant. The problem is that we put second things first. We take things that maybe are good in and of themselves and we make them idols. We make them supreme. We make them the great God before which we bow. And the church has done that with relevance. It's not a bad thing. It's helpful. But it is not our identity in Christ. We make second things, first things in our culture. We see it all around us. We make second things, first things in the church, in our denominations, in our congregations even. We make second things, first things in our families and in our own lives. We take something that is reasonably good, something that is perhaps even helpful, 
and we build our lives around it and we lose ourselves in doing so. We are called to faithfulness. It is only a faithful church that will renew our culture. But what will that take? I suggest to you this morning that it'll take corporate repentance. That's what Nehemiah chapter 1 is all about. Along comes this man that you don't even realize until the tail end of verse 11. Oh, he is the... My podium up here is shrinking, and so I'm holding on to my Bible to try to keep the shrinkage slowed, and therefore I'm not able to hold on to my glasses, and when I grab the top of the podium, it seems like it's about to come off, and so we're having difficulties up here. Low-tech difficulties. The whole context of Nehemiah 1 is about repentance. The king's cupbearer crying out before God, would you heal us, Lord? Would you hear from us? Would you take, take sight of our plight? And would you restore us? Yes, we failed you. Yes, we turned away from you. And in your law, the covenant that you made with us as a people, we knew what would happen when, when we did that. And you were faithful to your word in punishing us justly. But Lord, in your covenant with us, you also said if we would just turn back to you, we could be renewed. And so it was the prophet Nehemiah who said, as the cupbearer of Cyrus, Lord, we're turning back. We're coming back home to you. Our temple is devastated. Our city is in ruins. Would you hear from heaven? Would you heal us? I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the church seems to have no answer for the culture that is in ruins today is that we don't pray enough. In fact, we, we've gotten to the point in our culture where we're snarky about prayer. A, a disaster happens, a travesty takes place, and people call for prayer, and they're met with derision and snide remarks. How about doing something? Well, prayer is doing something. And we pray not after all other efforts fail, but we pray in order to seek God in our efforts. And we pray specifically, not just, Lord, bless us, but we pray, Lord, heal us. We have failed. Notice that the prophet Nehemiah puts himself, he interjects himself into the equation of Israel's sin. It wasn't 
Nehemiah's fault that Israel was in Babylonian captivity. But he says, it was my father's house. And even so, it was I. Never does Nehemiah say, those knuckleheads or these people before us. Never does he say, in previous generations, Lord. He says, we have blown it. And he prayed earnestly and apparently without ceasing. He says to the Lord, day and night, you know I am seeking you. In fact, it seems that how verses 10 and 11 end here in Nehemiah 1, that Nehemiah is also praying even in the presence of Cyrus. Because he says, give your servant me and give your servants your people who are returning to you. Give us favor. Give me favor before him. And that's when he has that dramatic introduction of himself. For I was the king's cupbearer. I'm convinced by knowing the scriptures and I'm convinced by knowing my history that it will take corporate repentance on the part of the church to renew what's devastated. I'm convinced that it'll take also cultural engagement. It was the church that saved Western civilization. It was Christianity that saved the culture of the West. Because even in the monastic movements, the church refused to cut itself off from its culture. But it interceded for its culture. It worked for the best of what its culture had to offer. And it will take the same today. It will take a mindset that doesn't just try to hunker down and hide out and weather the storm. It will take the mindset of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, I cannot escape away the devastation and then try to come back once the storms have settled and try to offer hope to those who have been devastated. I must ride it out with my people. And so leaving the safety of New York, Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor, a pastor of the Confessing Church in Nazi Germany, said, thank you, friends. You have, you have provided opportunity, opportunity for me to be safe and to get away and to hunker down and just ride this storm out in the safety of America. But I must go back into the fires. I must go back through those waters I must fight for culture within it. And so it'll probably take the church engaging 
the culture, through the arts. That's not something new. Again, it was the church that saved the arts. It was the church that saved the thought of history, that saved education, that saved the Western languages, that saved music in the West. The church must engage the culture in the arts, in literature, music, and film, and you name it. We ought to be praying as we pray as a people. We ought to be praying, Lord, would you give us and would you give to our culture the blessing of deeply beautiful and impactful artists. Give to the church the gifts of beauty and imagination. That's not some modern Western appeal for relevance. In the Scriptures, you read that God gave the, the blessings and the gifts of even metalworking for the sake of His people and for the beauty of His temple. The gift of, of, of music, the beauty of music to musicians. And this may seem a bit out of left field, but I'm convinced that renewal, for it to be possible, it will also take congregational prioritization. Because it's so easy to talk about the church at large. It's so easy to talk about culture at large and community as some big ideal. But it'll take us thinking smaller. It'll take us thinking more inward. Not inward, but inward as the body. It'll take you and me, us, our families... Our friends, prioritizing the local. Prioritizing what happens in our congregation. What happens with the body, in the body, and what God is able to do then through the body. But what can we do? For starters, we can slow down, unplug, get out, and invite home. I am not the one to stand before you today and tell you that I do this well. In fact, I don't know that there's any one of us who would be the one to stand up here and tell the rest of us that we do this well. In fact, just this week, Lindsay and I were eating, and after the fact, she got on my case because I was looking at my phone a, a smidge too much.
We've probably all been there. But the question is, do we care more about this device and what happens on the book of faces and David would call it face foot. Do we care more about the 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 we could say fake or phony, but they're kind of fake phony. The the relationships that we have technologically with people that we don't actually have to see, people that we don't whose voices we don't actually have to even hear. Do we prioritize that over the people that we actually live in community with? The people that we actually have daily, real life relationships with? What's something we can do? Well, we can slow down. We can unplug ourselves. I'm not saying get off of Facebook, never do anything like that. I mean... I'm not I'm not calling for that. But we certainly cannot neglect the people before us for the sake of trying to be connected to people that are never before us. We can get out. Get out of our houses. Get out of our homes. Get out into the neighborhood. Get out where there are other people and other families. This also has to do with that unplugging. You know, how much time do we spend in front of a a screen? And away from others. And we can invite home. Because once we get out of our homes, once we get out where there are others, we'll find others who we ought to make welcome. in our homes back with our families this isn't very isn't a very popular suggestion it's not a very um, it is kind of a countercultural suggestion banks it's um It's a bit odd to invite people over nowadays, which is really weird. We, we probably, most of us, grew up where it was totally common to have people over at the house for meals. Where it was totally commonplace to have other families in our family homes. But people are starving for that. And they're no longer getting that. 
We spend more and more time in detached relationships and less and less time in real face-to-face relationships. What can we do? We can also live out our values as a congregation in real life. We say that we value relational community. We say that we value transformational discipleship. We say that we value personal mission. We need to stop saying that we value those things and we need to actually live out these values in real life. Relational community, being gathered together for the meal, sharing life together, interacting together, knowing what's going on with one another, going through what's going on with one another. We say we value transformational discipleship. That together God is able to change us. That together we want God to change us. And so we gather together for the meal in order to be changed by God so that we might then be able to be sent out in personal mission. Sent out full to be spent for the sake of the world. As a congregation here locally, us, family, We need to actually live out these values in real life. Finding real, tangible ways where they can not just be ideals or autos, but where they are realities in our lives. And lastly, we can invite others to the table. To the table of grace. To the table of God's redemption. Others are hungry. Others are waiting. Others are out there. Just yesterday, a couple of us were standing, or a few of us were standing out uh, around the the old building, just a mile up the road here. And the question was asked, what's, what's up with faith? Why aren't we growing? And Bill offered what I thought was the most pointed and most sometimes obvious, sometimes not so obvious of answers. And I think he hit the nail on the head. We've got to be inviting people. We've got to be reaching out to people. Because we look at the culture around us and we see that it is collapsing, that it is crumbling. And I offer you the promise of God's Word that renewal is possible. But renewal won't just happen. It won't just happen naturally. It will happen relationally. 
as we gather together to be fed by God and as we welcome others into our homes and into our congregation to be fed at the table of grace. If we're not willing to talk to our neighbors, if we're not willing to have friends over to our house, co-workers, people that we don't yet know all that well, then we can start preparing to say goodbye to the culture that we've known. Renewal is possible, but it'll cost us.